Hello everyone, and welcome to Taming the Shrew. My name is Adam Gatula, an emergency medicine resident at the University of Cincinnati. And today I'm here to discuss the left ventricular assist device, otherwise known as the LVAD. I'm incredibly fortunate to be joined by Dr. Liz Powell, a previous emergency medicine attending and currently a critical care fellow at the University of Cincinnati. We're also fortunate to have Ms. Paige Barger, a nurse practitioner in the cardiovascular ICU and all-around LVAD expert. So to begin our discussion, can you start by bringing us up to date on what exactly an LVAD is? So LVAD stands for left ventricular assist device and is a device used to manage a variety of patients with congestive heart failure that require mechanical circulatory support. There are multiple different LVADs on the market these days and most of the time they're classified by the type of flow and the device location during implantation. Devices previously were pulsatile in the uh, late 1990s and early 2000s and with pulsatility those devices last significantly less length of time, roughly a year and a half. But the continuous flow device was developed in 1998 and is now the most common device seen here at University of Cincinnati Medical Center with the HeartMate 2, which is a continuous flow pump that was approved by the FDA in 2008. So you guys are going to mostly run into left ventricular assist devices in the transport environment and in most emergency departments because these are your outpatients that are out living their lives, something happens, and they end up either coming into an emergency department or coming into an outside hospital and may need transport somewhere else. But I think it's important to also be aware that in larger centers that have advanced heart failure programs, that you can also run into a biventricular assist device, which is exactly what it sounds like, or a right ventricular assist device. But these, these won't be the folks that are out there living in the community and then have something happen and have to come in. Now that we know LVADs are used in a variety of situations, could we discuss how LVADs work and do all of these patients need an overstone aortic valve? Left ventricular assist devices have several different components and several different variables that are measured and we'll talk about those a bit later. But whenever we talk about the device, it's important to understand the terminology when we talk about inflow and outflow. So the left ventricular assist device uses a centrifugal pump in which the blood is taken out of the left ventricular apex into the pump and pumped into the aorta. So that cannula that sits in the left ventricular apex is called the inflow cannula. The blood is going into the pump and then comes out through the outflow graft into the aorta. This pump does house motors that rotate at a set speed, which we'll talk about that in generation of flow. And then the pump is hooked up to a drive line that supplies the pump with battery in the form of uh, power and then also has a system controller, an initial component that provides much information about the device in its setting. An overstone aortic valve is always something to talk about in the setting of patients who have a left ventricular assist device. If these patients at the time of implantation had significant aortic insufficiency, the aortic valve will be actually sewn shut. This makes the patient completely VAD dependent and is important to know when you're assessing a patient and potentially resuscitating them. Yeah, super, super important if you can determine that information. Sometimes it's hard, especially if the patient's by themselves or unresponsive. But you can imagine a situation where you have an inflow cannula that's sitting in the left ventricle and you have severe aortic insufficiency. When you have that inflow cannula, it's essentially taking blood 
out of the left ventricle, putting it into the motor rotor system, and then exiting through the outflow cannula into the ascending aorta. Without oversewing that aortic valve, that blood will essentially flow back into the left ventricle, and it's almost creating a feedback loop where you're not actually supplying blood to the rest of the body. So without oversewing that aortic valve in a patient with severe aortic insufficiency, they will essentially be in shock because they're not going to be perfusing any other organ system, uh, and they will look like they're in shock. Now that we understand the basic concept of an LVAD, what are the different variables that we need to be paying attention to, and what do they mean? I think what you should consider first is if you are part of a transport system that is aligned in some form or fashion or is regularly transporting patients uh, that could potentially have an LVAD or is a health system that has a VAD program, you probably just want to program that coordinator's phone number in your phone. So all of these programs, whether you're here in Cincinnati or somewhere else, are going to have a coordinator that's available 24-7, 365 that has the ability to also get a hold of some of the other heart failure folks as well. But you have to be able to speak the language too and you have to be able to know how to get the information because they're probably going to want to know some very basic things like what alarms were going off? What speed is the VAD set at? What are some of the power, flow, and PI readings? And depending on the type of device you use, it may be slightly different. Um, in the materials that are associated with this, we give you some instructions with the HeartMate too of how to acquire that information really quickly. But this way you can acquire that information while you're getting a hold of your VAD coordinator. So the variables that we're going to talk about now, which are going to be really important when you are making decisions, developing differential diagnoses, and talking to the VAD program folks, are going to be speed, power, flow, and PI, or pulsatility index. So speed is going to be measured in RPMs, just like it is most of the time. Depending on the type of VAD you have, the set speed may be slightly different, but it's gonna run somewhere around 86 to 9600 RPMs on your typical heart rate too. But this is gonna be patient specific. So when these LVADs are placed in the operating room for the first time, the speed is set based on a TEE or a transesophageal echocardiogram. Basically what they're looking for is they set a speed and then they look at the left ventricle. So does the left ventricle look overloaded or full and the speed needs to be increased? Or is the septum kind of bowing in and there's concern for a suction event and the speed needs to be decreased? So essentially what you're looking for is a neutral septum that allows for left ventricular offloading. That is a set speed of the, of the LVAD, which may be changed when the patient is in the ICU or based on additional echo findings, but typically the speed that's set in the operating room is set under those ideal circumstances with a TEE in place. Speed is the only true adjustable parameter on the LVAD. The next value that you're going to be looking at is power. So power is measured in watts, and it's the measured amount required to achieve a designated rotor speed. So it's the power of the rotor to generate the speed that you're essentially want, that is the patient's optimal speed. So increasing speed should increase power and vice versa within a kind of normal range. And power is going to be a measured value that is taken through the controller uh, that you can also take a look at on the LVAD. Flow, importantly, is a calculated value. And I think that's really important to understand because when you look at a flow and look in liters per minute and you see a value that appears to be reasonable, you think to yourself, oh, 
this patient is receiving an adequate flow and ad adequate cardiac output, but that may not necessarily be the case because that flow is assuming that there's nothing wrong with the device and that the device is optimally functioning. Flow is a calculated value based on speed and power. So if there is an issue with the LVAD, you can have a falsely high or falsely reassuring flow value when in fact the patient's end organs aren't actually seeing that amount of cardiac output. And then finally, you have your pulsatility index. So pulsatility index is a measure of native left ventricular function. So a higher PI is gonna indicate that the patient has more native function, and a lower PI is going to indicate less of a native function. So what are some of the things that we might see go wrong in an LVAD patient? I think you can basically dial it down to, is there a problem with the VAD itself? Is the patient having a medical problem that's secondary to having a VAD in place, or are they bleeding? So I'll start and then Paige can certainly jump in with her expertise because she's seen a lot more of this than I have. But to talk about LVAD specific problems first. So something that is not uncommonly seen would be a pump thrombus. So all of these patients that have one of these LVADs in place are anticoagulated on Coumadin. And obviously that leads to bleeding concerns, but subtherapeutic INRs or low Coumadin levels can certainly be concerning as well because these patients can develop thrombi. The origin of the thrombus can come from either the left atrium or left ventricle because you don't have much native contractility or can develop on the rotor itself within the motor. A thrombus can increase the drag on the rotor and increase the power requirements to continue at a constant speed. What you'll see in the situation of a pump thrombus specifically is your power will typically go up because you're trying to compensate to keep the patient RPM speed at that value that you set, uh, but you'll see the PI decrease. The other problem with these thrombi is that they can embolize, and then you can have other complications just like you would in, a, in any patient where you develop a thrombus, so strokes, things like that. What you typically want to do with these patients, and again, this will be in conjunction with your VAD center, will be if they're INR subtherapeutic, these guys will typically be heparinized. So you could have a situation where the patient goes into an outside hospital, has some readings um, on their device that are consistent with a pump thrombus, so high power, low PI, fluctuating speeds as the rotor is trying to compensate. Maybe they get a CT with IV contrast, maybe they get an echo. Uh, they're determined to have a pump thrombus uh, and they're subtherapeutic on their INR. So oftentimes they will be started on heparin and then you will be asked to transport them to the actual center that takes care of them for further management. Suction events are not uncommon, especially in the newly implanted left ventricular assist device. And this happens when the pump speed is set higher than the relative volume within the left ventricle. So this causes the intraventricular septum to collapse over and cause a flow obstruction. This commonly results in arrhythmias and most common arrhythmia in this situation is ventricular tachycardia. So when the LVAD detects a suction event, the pump will automatically drop the pump speed to the lowest set limit of the device in order to allow the left ventricle to fill again and hopefully restore normal flow. 
You have to remember, in all situations, left ventricular assist device patients are preload dependent and very, very afterload sensitive. So a suction event should lead to volume replacement for your patients that you suspect hypovolemia or pump speed adjustments if the patient appears euvolemic. Pump speed adjustments should only be done by people who are comfortable with making those changes to the device. Um, and if you are suspicious that this is a primary problem, I encourage you to reach out to your valve coordinator for instruction on how to do this. But common causes of suction events like we talked to already are hypovolemia, poor cannula positioning. So if that cannula in the LV apex is angled towards the septum, that can also be a precursor to suction events. Right ventricular failure, um, pulmonary hypertension and cardiac tamponade, all causes in which preload can be reduced in making that bad suction down when the LV is, is underfilled. The close cousin to the pump thrombus is going to be your cannula obstruction. So any type of cannula obstruction, either thrombus or otherwise. Uh, but unlike the pump thrombus, this isn't a specific motor problem. This is a cannula obstruction. So speed will typically be constant. Power will decrease because the motor doesn't have that increased drag like it does with the pump thrombus. And with power decreasing, your PI will increase as well. And then I'll just take, if the, if the pump stops, if the LVAD start, stops working, I think a good rule of thumb, um, regardless for these LVAD patients, if they come into your facility, is plug it in, plug it in, plug it in, plug it in, and then assess the patient further. But certainly if it stops, plug it in. If you are transporting these patients, you want to check how much battery they have before, and you want to have a mechanism in place to plug it in as soon as possible. That is something that we've seen before when patients have been transported either from their homes or from an outside facility is low battery. And certainly if you have a patient, especially that is L completely LVAD dependent, that's a really bad day if you don't plug it in and they're low battery. So plug it in, plug it in, plug it in. I think another common complication to talk about is GI bleeding. And this occurs in roughly 20 to 40% of patients with LVADs uh, thought to be a due to acquired von Willebrand's factor deficiency or um, AVMs. And these complications are all due to altered physiology, re all related to this continuous flow. Obviously, our bodies are not used to continuous flow, and so going from pulsatile to continuous flow is a major adjustment. But generally, these patients require frequent endoscopies and temporary reversals in their anticoagulation in very severe cases. Sometimes the patients are hemodynamically stable with minor GI bleeding, and in those situations, we won't reverse their anticoagulation. We will simply replenish their blood and monitor them to see if we can get the bleeding under control. However, these should not be decisions made in silos and should be done in coordination with the valve coordinator, the patient's surgeon, and the heart failure team. Um, Obviously, if the patient is grossly unstable and experiencing a massive GI bleed, discussions regarding a reversal of anticoagulation should be had immediately. This also kind of bleeds in, for full pun intended, to trauma and <laughs> spontaneous <laughs> bleeding. And because our VAD patients are fully anticoagulated, and this may mean an INR of two to three for some and two and a half to three and a half for others, it is very patient dependent. They are at an increased risk for hemorrhagic complications in the setting of trauma. And if the patients are, again, unstable, just like with GI bleed, you do have to talk about the risks of pump thrombus and the benefit of being reversed in terms of anticoagulation. Hemolysis is another complication of these mechanical circulatory support devices. 
there are various labs that you can look at um, in order to uh, determine if you're concerned about hemolysis and then obviously a good physical exam as well. So is a patient fatigued? Do they have dark urine? Do they have sclerolectris? Uh, is their LDH, uh, plasma-free hemoglobin, and T-bili increased? These are all things that can indicate hemolysis and should also make you concerned for a pump thrombus as well. Another complication to talk about is driveline infections and, and kind of other driveline problems. And so if you look back at the components of the LVAD, the driveline is actually the percutaneous cable that connects to the patient system controller that helps supply information from the VAD and also supply power back to the device. But driveline infections are not uncommon. And for this reason, patients are taught a very rigorous regimen for cleaning and maintaining their VAD in the outpatient setting, including sterile dressing changes. Um, but it's not uncommon for these sites to become infected. And so in these situations, uh, we may need to do surgical debridement or VAC placements for these patients to maintain their driveline sites. Um, but also, if these drivelines become seeded with infection, it can migrate to the device and obviously seed the device itself. All right, next, right ventricular failure. So for these LVAD devices, patients are screened for right ventricular failure prior to having an LVAD placed because if they have biventricular failure, obviously they may be a candidate for some other type of device. But approximately 15 to 20% of patients can develop right ventricular failure even after LVAD placement. There's a high mor morbidity and mortality associated with right, right ventricular failure because we talked about the preload dependency of these devices. So these patients will look like they are in shock and it will be primarily cardiogenic in nature. They may require an inotrope, but they may also require uh, right ventricular support devices or some other type of advanced intervention as well. Given the scenario where someone presents in VFib or VTAC, should we treat this just as we would treat any other patient? So what can make LVAD patients a little bit unsettling when you're assessing them is they can be in VTAC or VFib and potentially be awake. Many of these patients have ICDs uh, that should fire with those rhythms as well. But if you have a patient that is awake in VF or VT, you don't necessarily need to defibrillate them because the LVAD is working, it's doing its job. However, if you have an unresponsive patient, if it's in doubt about whether their VAD is working or not, if it's in doubt as to whether they are receiving any type of cardiac output or not, you can just go ahead and defibrillate them like you would any other patient without a, uh, without a device. When treating an LVAD patient in the emergency department and working to rule out all the previously mentioned complications, where do I start with my assessment? So initial assessment of the VAD patient should be performed in the same manner of a non-VAD patient in terms of assessing their consciousness, airway, breathing, and an H&P. Um, in the setting of an unstable VAD patient, oftentimes they have a point person, a family member, a close friend, someone that is responsible for the VAD in the event that they cannot care for themselves. And they oftentimes will be able to provide you with a pretty lengthy history that will help you steer you in the right direction. But in the event that you can't talk to somebody regarding their specific VAD parameters, you want to ask them about any changes in their alarms, any changes in their parameters. That's these patients are very in tune with assessing what their normal is and when things are deviating from their normal. Other things such as known infections is 
Dr. Powell talked about the events of the common GI bug or flu that maybe they're a little bit more volume down but have continued to take all of their diuretics and afterload reduction agents and now that preload afterload sensitive pump is is suffering a bit. Other things, if they've noticed more bruising or, or have had evidence of bleeding, even minor trauma, need to also be assessed. In these situations, these patients have very specific INR ranges, so asking them what their normal INR is will be helpful as you get those labs back and begin to assess how you're going to manage their anticoagulation. The unresponsive LVAD patient can certainly be challenging. Uh, EMS may have gotten a call for a patient that was found down unresponsive at home. They may have may not, or may not have known to take extra batteries or plug the patient's LVAD in. So certainly when the patient gets to your facility, uh, you want to plug them in and you want to do a patient, basic assessment, such as just listening to them to see if you can hear kind of that mechanical hum of the LVAD. The other question that I think we get a fair amount, uh, we get called about a fair amount, is should you do chest compressions on these guys? I can tell you the simple answer is when in doubt, if it doesn't appear that the device is working and the patient is unresponsive, do chest compressions. Just keeping in mind that if this patient ends up having an oversewn aortic valve, that doing chest compressions is not going to cause any forward flow from the left ventricle to the ascending aorta because those that patient prior was completely VAD dependent. So when in doubt, and you don't have any mechanical humming or any other indication that the VAD is working, it is okay to do chest, external chest compressions with the hope that they do not have an oversewn aortic valve and you are able to provide some type of forward flow. Well, that will cover it for our basic review of LVADs going from their initial function to complications and assessment of a patient with an LVAD. Dr. Powell and Paige Barger, thank you so much for joining us today and for walking us through the basics of an LVAD.